It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal. Over the next few weeks, the focus in American women's soccer is going to shift from on the field to meeting rooms and Zoom calls taking place all over the country. On today's episode of All of Us, the U.S. Women's Soccer Show, we're going to talk about two collective bargaining agreements that are going to have a major impact on the future of the game the U.S. Women's National Team, and the NWSLs. Sometimes I know it it feels like you need to be a lawyer to properly follow everything that's going on in these contract talks. Uh, And since Amy and I are not planning on taking the bar anytime soon, today we are going to be joined by UCLA Law Professor Stephen Bank to talk all things CBA. Welcome to the show. My name is Seth Bertelny, and joining me is Goals Women's Soccer Correspondent, and my fellow non-lawyer, Amy Ruskai. Amy, how's it going? Yeah, feeling feeling very educated today after this. How how are you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was it was definitely good to get Professor Bank to take us through some of the developments and some of the permutations of these two CBAs. I want to give just a quick rundown on where we are and talk about what these CBAs mean. The U.S. Women's National Team CBA is set to expire at the end of 2021, so the end of this month. Meanwhile, the NWSL Players Association is in talks with the league. Uh, They have been for months over their first CBA. Uh, We're heading into season 10 of the NWSL. The first nine seasons were played without a CBA. Just a little bit of a breakdown here. Um, a CBA is a written legal contract between an employer and a union representing the employees. Um, it sets out the terms for employment, including wages, benefits, and, and everything else that go along with being an employee. The U.S. Women's National Team CBA has has been in the news a lot over the past few years because the national team sued U.S. Soccer, their employer, over the terms in their last CBA, uh, which is about to expire. They allege that it 
discriminated against them because of their gender. Um, they have managed to reach a settlement over some of the working conditions, but in terms of the pay, a judge ruled in U.S. soccer's favor last year, and the women's national team is appealing that ruling. In the meantime, they are negotiating their new CBA with U.S. soccer, and U.S. soccer has invited the men's national team to negotiate alongside them. In the meantime, the NWSL is negotiating the first CBA with their players association. Uh, the NWSL players are looking for three main things, uh, free agency, freedom of movement, a living wage, and increased health and safety standards. You know, the health and safety piece of this has been really highlighted over the past few months by a number of abuse scandals involving NWSL coaches that's something that, that, that players are, are really going to, to push in these negotiations. The league season starts up again in the spring, and, and both sides, the league and the players, want to have a deal in place by the time the 2022 season gets underway. And so let's bring on Professor Bank to talk a little bit more about some of the details in these negotiations and, and where we're headed from here. All right, joining us on All of Us today is UCLA law professor Stephen Bank. Uh, professor Bank is kind of my go-to person uh, whenever I have any questions about the intersection of soccer and law. And currently we have two CBAs with the national team and with the NWSL. And so we wanted to bring Professor Bank on to answer all of our questions about CBA negotiations. Uh, Professor Bank, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Seth. I wanted to start with the NWSL. Uh, this is an interesting negotiation because there's currently not a CBA in place as the league heads into its 10th season. So the first nine seasons were played without a CBA in place. How does that affect the negotiation when there isn't a CBA in place to kind of work off of, to kind of use as a template? Uh, do you look to other sports, uh, other leagues? Uh, how does that affect the negotiations? Well, it, de it definitely means that the lawyers don't have a draft they can go off of, don't have an existing agreement. Uh, the NWSA Players Association was formed in 2017, became the formally recognized as the bargaining um, representative in 2018. Uh, so it's been a long process to even get to the point where it's it's clear that it's it's negotiating. Uh, one thing that that um, happened in the fall that probably was under the radar for most people is that the NWSL uh, Players Association became a, a recognized affiliate of the AFL-CIO. And so what that means is that um, I mean, the AFL-CIO, mo most people like associate with like the Teamsters or, you know, something like that. But it means that they're, they've got a lot of support from unions in a, a variety of areas. Uh, clearly, all of the sports unions are then going to be kind of um, interested in this and representing them. The, the players, though, also have kind of union support. So it's not as if they're 
you know, walking into this and saying, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, we don't have a union. You know, you, they have a lot of union people who are uh, interested in them. And a lot of the sports unions look at each other's agreements as a precedent for theirs. Probably the NFL is helping out NWSL. I mean, all these people help out each other. So I think from that perspective, they're all interested. They all want to make sure things are going well. One of the issues um, that's relevant, I suppose, from the MLS side is MLS is also a single entity league, just like NWSL. And so that makes the whole union negotiation a very different thing than when you're negotiating with the league, but you've got franchises and there's different locations and independent entities. All the contracts are owned by the league. So MLS Players Association, no doubt, is, is um, also a resource for the, the players in this regard. The, there are differences though, um, and, and you know one of the differences is um, there is another union um, representing players playing in NWSL, and that's the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association, and they already have a CBA. So that is a both helpful and a, a, a potentially um, a conflicting um, a resource for them. So, you know, that, that's where, you know, a lot of, it's a long process, but it's one that they're not going into alone. How does that interplay between the NWSL union and the USWNT union play out in these negotiations, especially because there's some overlap there. Most of the U.S. Women's National Team plays in the NWSL. Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, it's a real mess. It, you know, I, mean, I don't know if it's operating as a mess. I'm not an insider in the negotiations. I don't know how they're dealing with it. But I can tell you from the outside, um, it, it is it is challenging for an employer when there are multiple unions. It happens all the time, just because you know, you, you know, I mean, construction might have a, the pipe fitters, and then they have the you know the welders or whatever it is. They have all sorts of groups, the the um, draw, drywall you know people. And what what is the issue with multiple unions in this case is uh, there are aspects of the U.S. Women's National Team deal that cover NWSL play, like safety and conditions uh, in the league that are in the U.S. Women's National Team CBA. And so how are they mixing those together? Did the Women's National Team negotiate for the right things? Are those things conflicting things with what the rest of the players want? It's not clear. The, the salaries are different. The allocated player salaries for the Women's National Team are, you know, tier one is 77,500 uh, in 2021. The tier two is players are 72,500. It's not a big difference. But the NWSL salary caps or range in, in 2021 is 52,500 at the top and 22,000 at the bottom. So you've got totally different salaries. So um, are the uh, players for the NWSL who are not necessarily the players for the U.S. Women's National Team are they saying we should be leveled up, or are the, the leagues arguing that the you know we will will agree to make you know one deal, but but the women's national team players if we're going to pay for them have to be down, uh, and that's an open question. The the negotiations in the women's national team deal, and I'm, I apologize for mixing the two, but they're totally related. Uh, um, affect things like. Are there going to be contracted and allocated players anymore? Uh, the the Chicago Red Stars announced yesterday four players, four women's national team players. I think it's uh, Davidson, Krieger, Kruger, um, uh, uh, Nair, and uh, Pugh were all women's national team players signed to contracts with Chicago Red Stars. Um, does the, you know that means they're not allocated players anymore? If they were, and if they're not, are they getting paid at the lower pay scale, or are they signed at a higher pay scale? How's that going to work? So 
Um, so that's a mess, really. Um, if they continue with two leagues with two employers, because that's what's happening is, is that up until now, the women's national team allocated players, their employer was not NWSL. Their employer was the women's national team, U.S. soccer, I should say. Um, so that's that's difficult, right? It's one thing to say on one job site, there are multiple unions. It's another thing to say there are multiple employers at a single job site, right? That's a, These are all just union problems that most industries don't have to deal with. They might have to deal with like, you bring in a, a, a you know a supplier, a vendor or something like that. They're, they're providing some workers who are on site, but they're really not your workers. That's kind of what the women's national team players have been like. So that's a challenge. Um, the players, the, the NWSL players are probably asking for, um, I mean, what we've heard publicly, and it's not surpri no surprise, they're asking for the same thing almost every sports union asks for. They're asking for higher salaries. Um, usually you start with higher minimum salaries, which is the same thing the MLS did. Um, because it's a bad look to say we should allow higher salaries at the top and ignore the people at the bottom. Uh, they ask for free agency. We want to have some say in where we go. Um, that's a challenge. That's the reason why MLS does not have true free agency yet, because uh, all the contracts are owned by the league, which means that the league doesn't want to bargain against itself. Um, um, in, up until recently, that has not been a huge deal for uh, NWSL because there was not a lot of other women's leagues that were true competitors to NWSL. That is not long, no longer true. There, there are plenty of options for at least the top players to go abroad and, and, and get good pay abroad. Um, and that's probably increasing, not decreasing. That's not a one-off. That's not just like, you know, um, one or two teams in Europe. Now it's a, a some leagues, um, with, with at least four or five teams per league. So, um, so that creates some issues. Free agency is now a potentially, you know, uh, valuable issue. Um, uh, but it is still something that single entity leagues are, are really um, concerned about. Um, my own view is that um, the, there's a way to do it. And I wrote about this when MLS was negotiating its deal for first free agency deal back in 2015. There's a way to limit the salary implications because that's usually the concern is that salaries they're going to bid against each themselves and salary is going to go up through the roof there's a way to do it so you just limit the salary increase but you still let them move to at least the place they want to be right um i do feel like in the last week uh anybody who's been following nwsl has probably been surprised at the weird trades that have been going on um you know um like uh, wow, what are they? They're tr for what do they want to be protected against the expansion draft that they're trading like their best players to you know Angel City FC or San Diego Wave? What's going on here? Um, uh, it seems like they should get more for that. Um, that seems to me more like players saying where they want to go and exercising a certain amount of free agency. And um, maybe that's what's you know maybe that's kind of the the league being accommodating. But whatever it is, is that's a, that's one thing I think the players are are obviously concerned about. And then the third issue that players have as a priority has to be safety, player safety, you know, freedom from abuse, uh, physical, emotional, mental abuse and the conditions. Um, there's a there's sort of a fourth issue out there, um, which people may have now forgotten already, but it's still out there, the age rule. Olivia Moultrie was an example of the age rule. And so in, in theory, the league still cares about that. Frankly, once you hear about all those coaches, abusive coaches, you can see why they wanted to keep minors away from 
their coach. That's that's a wholly weird way yeah. to do it. Like, how about we get better coaches rather than uh, um, you know do an age role? But I, you can see why they're thinking about that. So anyway, that's a lot of stuff. But um, you know, that's that's a lot of things that are going on. A lot of moving parts. Yeah, you touched on a lot of the a lot of the stuff there. Obviously, um, you you mentioned the health and safety stuff. What kind of protections do you know? can these kind of players ask for in, in the NWSL? And what should they be asking for, do you think? Well, they certainly have already asked for a certain amount of things that I think the the, the, the league agreed to. Um, and remember, the Players Association, even without a CBA, can negotiate as a, as a group, as a unit. There's some value to having a Players Association. And that's what they did in the... Uh, in you know when when the news broke about various coaches Washington Spirit and others um, who were being let go and the abuses in Portland or poor past abuses in in Portland and all that so um, you know they want to have a seat at the table um, in in deciding some of these things and deciding conditions and um, and deciding kind of um, how abuse is reported how transparent you are with the players how you're handling the dispute resolution process the complaint process um, players um, in every sport this is a problem players have um, want want to blow the whistle on um, on coaches or on owners that are mistreating them or whatever and um, in leagues that have unions and have a CBA, there's a very clear process. It is a process that protects them from whistleblowing, that, that provides some due process for um, the players and for the, it provides due process for everybody, but it provides a, a, a clear guidelines on how this is handled. You can't just go to the owner and the owner says, you know, I'll deal with it or something like that, or go to the league. The league has to, you know, uh, record these things, has to, um, uh, have an investigation, all of that. The investigation is usually an independent investigation um, or there's a neutral arbitrator involved or something like that. So you expect that. And that's pretty much a process that many leagues have, have navigated, but not for these issues per se. It's usually issues of being, you know, um, it's usually players being accused of things, um, you know, drug drugs or um or, or, or domestic assault or something like that. Um, but it also would apply if, you know, if they're being mistreated or if there's bad conditions. So you would expect that. You'd expect them to at least, they have templates already in other leagues and they should adapt them to these circumstances. Um, but there, there, there is a trickier issue and probably negotiation is not as easy as, as you might think because um, the fact that someone is accused doesn't mean, you know, the league will open itself up for litigation if they just literally, you know, fire them because of an accusation. There should be some process for that. But uh, but they they have situations where they've settled things where pretty much they have already investigated them and then they don't tell the other teams or they just let them go to another team. And that seems pretty clearly uh, problematic. All of us, the U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal. Get the latest news and views on the U.S. Women's National Team and the NWSL on Goal. U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal. Find more U.S. Women's Soccer news and opinion on Goal. Another big talking point in the NWSL this season has been the No Side Hustles campaign. Um, 75% of the league makes under $31,000. Obviously, the players are looking to raise both the minimum and the maximum salary that they can earn. And, and of course, when you look at this, 
you say, why shouldn't they make more money? Uh, they, they should at least be able to play soccer as their only job. And I'm, I'm wondering like what the other side of that is, uh, because clearly there's a reason that salaries have been controlled in the way that they have. Um, I know that there's been a lot of fears, at least in previous years of the league going under uh, the way that the two predecessors to the NWSL did. I'm wondering what your sense is of, of how much the owners can really budge on, on the salary issue. I, I know that most NWSL owners are, are still losing money. So, so where, where's a good compromise in this issue where they can, you know, raise the, the salary numbers for these players and, and also continue to keep the league growing at a, a steady and a sustainable pace. Yeah, and I, I would add, so Seth, let, before answering that question, let me add one more complication, again, with the U.S. Women's National Team. If the Women's National Team players are not going to be allocated and contracted, paid for by U.S. soccer anymore, which is entirely possible under the Women's National Team own CBA negotiations, because that is the weakest part of their pay equity case, is that they have, they have a deal that pays them salaries, and if they can disengage from that, then... Uh, there'll be more equal footing with the men's deal. That is, the structure will be similar. Um, so if that happens, then who's paying for those women's national team players who are not going to accept going down to, you know, $31,000 or, or below, right? So um, uh, so the, the, the owners are facing not just uh, possibly paying more for their the players they've been paying for, but paying for players they have, no, they have not in the past had to pay for because U.S. soccer could in theory end their subsidy entirely and say, we're just out. You know, we're, we're, we don't subsidize other leagues. You're in business for 10 years, you're on your own now. So that's a big problem. They, you know, there's a money problem basically. So the ways you usually deal with those situations is um, revenue sharing, right? So that's the, the easiest thing is, is to, to increase the capacity for revenue sharing. Um, basically uh, if NWSL is, which it is, is still, in the process of negotiating better and more media deals and um, sponsorship arrangements. And they've actually made some real progress. In fact, ironically, under the past commissioner who was let go as part of this process, uh, the fallout from the, you know, the scandals over the coaches and, and the handling of that, um, they actually were doing pretty well on this, the sponsorship side. Like that is the side where they were making some headway. Um, so they can't um, let that backslide. Like that has got to continue. Um, and they have some challenges there because um, it's a crowded media market now. You know, um, MLS is negotiating a new TV deal. Uh, you just saw a new Premier League deal. Uh, and these are big dollar deals. So, you know, it's a question of whether... Uh, how much money is left over for all this. Um, but they that's one way, is, is revenue sharing is a way to bridge the gap. It doesn't get you all the way there, but it's a way to say, look, let's grow the league together. Um, so that's a compromise um, way. And, and the Women's National Team Players Association negotiated that in their last CBA. They didn't get all they wanted from U.S. soccer. They negotiated some revenue sharing, some ability to raise money on their own um, and keep it you know, those are ways to raise more money. The The other thing, though, is, is realistically, um, NWSL needs sort of wealthier owners, frankly. Uh, they've gotten some new teams, some new ownership groups into the league. They have some um, 
teams that are are up for sale or that you know the rights are at least up for sale it looks like the owners they need better you know just bigger owners and i'm a little worried about that to be honest um you know sports ownership is not about operating revenues right operating is never going to cover the the investment so what is what is going to cover it it's appreciation capital appreciation that's the rise in value of, of the ownership rights and so you need really wealthy people who are willing to burn money for a while um, in exchange for raising the overall value. Um, the, you know, that doesn't mean billionaires want to burn money, right? They, they try to avoid that. That's how they got to be billionaires, but um, they have a better chance of it. You know, I'm a little worried about, say, for example, Angel City FC's got a lot of owners, but they're all like rich, not filthy rich, right? Like you need people who are like, burn money in the in the fireplace for for christmas rich right and um you know that's not them they're not they just you know san diego um is actually better positioned in that way um uh, utah's old owner actually was that guy right you know who was just really really you know he was one of the wealthiest owners so um you'd like to see them get um more of that right um but in terms of the so it, that's not to say they can't do. They, they're definitely going to have an increase in the in the salaries because that's just the way it would work. It's just how close they get to to use as the as the comparison the U.S. soccer's allocated salaries, those seventy thousand dollar salaries. Um, if they can get up to the max being in that range uh, and the minimum being in like the thirty to forty thousand range, um, they will have accomplished. A decent amount because they'll have, they'll give room for the women's national team players to come over and they'll give um, players healthy raises. Um, but I don't, you know, the, for them to be able to afford it, they need more consistent sponsorships, more consistent revenues. I do think that getting the LA Southern California teams in should be helpful in negotiating um, both in terms of ticket sales, but in terms of um, negotiating media deals. And that that will be very helpful. That has been a a problem not having basically all of, I mean, most of the uh, um, biggest TV market out, right? This is not a great thing. So, so th these are the, I mean, these are problems we're facing. I mean, usually the way to deal with this in a negotiation is for the, um, everybody to be transparent about it. And I don't know if NWSL owners are being transparent, but it's being, look, here's what it is. Um, here's what we can do. Um, but as, as you said, the problem is they've had two leagues fail. I don't think we're at that point here, but um, but I also don't think it's like, wow, this is a really stable financial, you know, investment right now. It's 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 at a crossroads right now that they need to get over the hump. And just to kind of round off the NWSL, then I guess um, the abuse scandals that we've seen over the last few months, we, you mentioned them a little bit just before, but how how much of an impact do you think that all that? is going to have on you know the negotiations that are currently going on for the CBA? Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I hate to put this in terms of, I mean, these are real human costs, obviously. People people were, you know, lives destroyed and all that. So I hate to put this in kind of legal or negotiating terms, but in, in reality, it gives leverage to the players. Um, so because it has, it resonates with the public, um, maybe more so than the side hustle. No more side hustles campaign resonates. I, I think that the side hustle campaign, I have to say, is um, uh, falls a little short in a gig economy where there's a lot of people doing side hustles, you know, and they're like, why are you different than us? You know, like we do side hustles. Um, 
Um, but I do think the abuse stuff is absolutely clear. Nobody, everybody thinks that's got to be a minimum standard. You can't run a business for abusing people. Um, so I think that I think that um, uh, that not in terms of money, but in terms of um, participation and governance. I think that gives some real credibility to the Players Association to uh, demand more, demand more transparency, um, uh, demand more uh, process, um, not treating them like indentured servants, um, the players like indentured servants. So I, I do think there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of ways in which that's going to affect things. Um, there are a few areas where um, I mean I haven't seen it. Because I, I mean, I haven't seen what's exactly happening, but you know, there's possible litigation, uh, and if there's and that litigation is both a leverage point, but also a, a, a an, an obstacle. So if there's existing litigation, like someone files existing litigation, and then you've got that going on, it's on the side, and it's, you know, it's hard to negotiate a deal when you've got a lawsuit going on, on the other side. So those are that's a challenge, but I do think that the threat of litigation is is, is itself a litigating is itself a, a leverage point. So I, I, I'm not sure it's going to change the money, but I, I do think it, it, it wakes up the owners who have thought this was a toy that they didn't have to pay attention to. You know, some of the wealthy owners said, I don't, you know, this is just out there. Um, no, you've got to pay attention. No, you can't hire your daughter's youth soccer coach who seemed to be a good guy just because you wanted to you know you've got to have real people involved here who know what they're doing you have professionals that is would be a very welcome development i want to move on to the women's national team and there's currently this really interesting dynamic with the cba negotiations where they are currently appealing a judge's ruling in their pay equity lawsuit which was related to their previous cba while at the same time, they're negotiating their next CBA. Uh, right now, it looks like there are going to be oral arguments sometime in the spring. And I'm wondering how the process of the current lawsuit affects the negotiations over their next CBA. Uh, do you think it's possible that they could settle their lawsuit if that's part of negotiations for their next CBA. Well, it's certainly possible, but let me just to just to give you a, the the legal sense of who's negotiating. The union, the women's national team union, is not a party to the lawsuit. So when you're negotiating with the lawyers for the union and the executive director of the union, those people don't have the power to agree to things like we'll take this. Uh, because if you give the players this on the lawsuit, right, that's not like there'd have to be both, both groups would have to be involved. It'd have to be a really a complicated deal. So, so it's a little more complicated than just one person saying, I'll give up my lawsuit if you give me this. Moreover, what makes it complicated is that the uh, women's national team lawsuit is all about the past, not about the future. So it's about, um, it's about back pay primarily, and it is uh, in working conditions originally, um, but it's back pay and it's a class action. It involves some retired players and many players who are going to be retired or who just retired even, uh, you know, like Carly Lloyd. So, um, so those players may have no interest in the future, right? They want their money from the past. And so the future doesn't help them any. Um, having said that, uh, 
if the players agree in the in the um, new CBA to if they come up with a really you know a good scheme, um, presumably that creates both good feelings and a positive structure that they can transport back to the lawsuit and say if we applied that scheme to the lawsuit players in past years, here's what it would look like. Here's what you would get paid, right? So it's some number in between zero and, you know, 60, you know, million dollars or whatever that um, the players were asking for. And so, you know, it's a way in which you can say, look, the players going forward thought this was a good deal. Um, uh, and some of you are those players and some of you are now, you know, on the union side. Um, here's what, uh, here, here's a, a template that we could apply to back pay and we could settle it. So that's a very positive thing if they can agree to that. Um, so I, I think that's the, you know, that's, it, it is possible to do. Keep in mind that the last women's national team CBA was signed 2017. It expires the end of, of this year. So at the end of this month, it expires. Um, doesn't mean, expire doesn't mean by the way that it is, they're no longer covered by a CBA. Uh, the CBA actually continues under its former terms. So it's not the, it's not really an end, but it, it does give you a sense. They signed it in 2017. That was after they had filed an, a, a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC. Um, so this, and that's the, the genesis of this case. Like they couldn't file this case, this lawsuit until they had gone through the EEOC. So, um, you know, so it's, there's nothing about filing a lawsuit that prevents you from doing a CBA. In fact, the filing one is leverage for the other, right? So the lawsuit out there is leverage for the U.S. soccer giving as good a deal as they can give for the uh, CBA. And um, frankly, that shifts the PR battle if the players insist if you know if the the players on the lawsuit side insist on a better deal than what they agreed to on the CBA deal, if that CBA deal looks fair to the pop, you know, to the public, and, you, and then they say, but we want no, we want a deal that you know is is in the stars. They agreed to a deal. They agreed to a compromise. Um, if the public thinks, well, that compromise seemed pretty reasonable, um, then the you know the public relations battle switches, and so that that's problematic. And I know that US soccer is kind of pointing a little bit to the prize money of the, the World Cups um, that FIFA hands out when they're kind of talking about equal pay and things like that. Um, I just wonder what your take was on on that, the, you know, the fact that US soccer are pointing to, I think it's 400 million total prize money for the men's and 38 million for the women's um, when they're talking about this equal pay stuff. Well, so so here's the, the prize money um, discussion has gotten... Um, really confused both sides frankly um uh both the u.s soccer and the u.s women's national team are um i don't know if intentionally misleading the public but they have definitely omitted um, bits of information uh, that are useful so um it is true that fifa uh, is the one who pays the prize money um that prize money, and so that's what U.S. soccer is saying. FIFA pays the prize, absolutely. FIFA pays it unequally. They pay a lot more to the men, uh, the winner, the, the the prize money for the, the people who advance at various levels of the men's World Cup. They pay much less to the women. Um, so that's all true. Um, but it is not true, as U.S. soccer said, that it's sort of out of our hands because um, uh, the money is paid to the football association of the country 
that wins, not to the players. It's not, it's not like that. It's not like, um, you know, uh, when, what was it, uh, um, uh, some, a secret or whatever, one of the deodorant companies said, you know, Hey, we'll give to the women directly some prize money. If they win, you know, that would be like out of us soccer's hands. Like somebody third party wants to give money. That's not our issue. So this is definitely paid to the association, but, uh, um, contrary to what the women are saying, um, the it, it is there's no country in the in the world except the U.S. who has ever paid 100 percent or virtually you know 80 to 80 percent plus of that money directly to the players. That money is is you know for France who won in uh, 2018 the men's World Cup they they got like um, something like maybe 30 to 40 percent in the aggregate went to the players. The rest went to fund you know youth development, coach development, ref development, fields, all those other things, all the operations, the the Paralympic, you know, operations, whatever. And that's what frequently happens, right? And so the the um the in a lot of ways US soccer gave away way too much to the men in the men's deal. That's what the women are going off of. They're going off the, the men's deal. Um feeling like there is no chance the men are ever going to win the World Cup. So we don't have to worry about this like outlandish deal to them. Um, and with the women, they're giving 100% of the money or almost 100% of the money to the women, knowing that it's so small that like no big deal. So if if FIFA suddenly switched around and said, you know what, you're right, we'll pay 200 million each. Um, U.S. soccer will be regretting both deals, right? But regretting the women's deal more because they're basically giving them all. So, um, you know, so that's a... You know, the prize money is a is a real issue for sure. It is the, I think that there is no question. Well, I don't think this. Uh, U.S. Soccer announced that it's willing to offer identical deals to the men and the women. Back in September, they said this, uh, and that includes everything that was paid for by them, right? So not not the stuff that was the prize money. So if the if that's what the women want, which by the way, women have not said that's what they want. And what is the sticking point? They have not said they're willing to forego guaranteed contracts, right, completely. Um, and uh, we can absolutely agree that it is unfair that the um, men's club teams pay dramatically more than the women's club teams. But that's the reason why the women may be still not absolutely willing to negotiate that off the table, you know, to, to, to throw that off the table. Um, but if they're willing to do that, then the, there, there's a deal there for that money. So that's why the prize money is the is the sticking point in many people's views. There was a development yesterday, or it was announced yesterday, I should say. There was a development November 29th. Um, um, uh, U.S. Soccer uh, just mentioned this on Twitter yesterday. They have a thread from U.S. Soccer Communications as part of their new effort to be transparent. Um, which I think means new effort not to shoot themselves in the foot PR-wise, which they have been really good at. I think they should enter the rifle competition um, at foot sh shooting because they're uh, they're probably the uh, uh, reigning champion. Um, uh, and even when they try to do it now to get out the information, they manage to do it. They manage to shoot themselves in the foot because they're not good at it, but they're at least trying. So their their effort. What they said was on November 29th, the men's and women's unions, players unions um, for the national teams came together in a single bargaining session. Um, they heard what U.S. soccer had to say about prize money uh, because there's no way to solve the prize money thing without both parties being involved. Because remember, what it would mean is 
U.S. soccer gets the prize money and splits it equally into funds for men's and women's soccer. So the U.S. men's national team would have to give up some of their prize money to the women if they qualified. Or in some years, like the last cycle where the U.S. men didn't qualify at all, the women would have to give up some of their money that was allocated to them into the men's pool. Um, uh, so you really have to have both parties at the negotiating table. And they, they got there um, for the first time, as far as I know, uh, and they agreed to come back with some kind of a proposal uh, to U.S. soccer. Now, the typical proposal, first proposal that I expect, will be one that is, um, uh, we absolutely agree that you should increase the women's pay to be the same as the men's. Um, uh, in other words, if we get 400 million, they get 400 million, right? All right, that ain't going to happen, right? There's no money out there, right? U.S. soccer is only like passing through what, what they get from FIFA. So, but that's what the U.S. men have made um, noise about. Absolutely, they should get paid more, but they never had said, we're willing to give up some of what we get. So um, we'll see what happens, but that's, um, that's the prize money is absolutely a sticking point. Um, because it's coming from FIFA, they can't they can't just make up that money. Yeah, I was I was I was wondering about just the the incentive for the men to to agree to to equalizing the the World Cup prize money because I think you know we've seen the the men's players union come out in support of the women's national team in their quest to to be paid more, um, but but what U.S. soccer is essentially asking is for the the men to voluntarily give up some of this money and so that is a a little bit different than just publicly voicing support now they're actually possibly going to be losing some money you know assuming they qualify for the next world cup which they seem to be in good shape but not completely sealed yet um so i'm wondering you know, when we're talking about the men and the women bargaining together, how that dynamic plays out and, and, and just like what incentive there is for the men to agree to something like that other than just good PR. Yeah, I mean, this, Seth, this goes back to a question you raised at the very start, which is there's no existing NWSL uh, CBA. So how do you start? You know, how does that affect the negotiations there when there is an existing deal? Um, I mean, you may appreciate this uh, um, uh, or anybody who writes something for a living. You know, if you've written something down, it's like you work really hard to find a way to fit what you already wrote into what you have. You don't like to cut what you've written. And it's really hard in the labor negotiations to dial back. And frankly, U.S. soccer gave both the men and the women um, deals that uh, don't exist in other countries. Um, why did Australia and Norway and other countries come up with these fairly easily, it seems, come up with these deals, besides the fact that it, like some of them, they only have one union, so it's easy to negotiate, that kind of thing. Um, 
they didn't ever have the right to get as much money as the players on on the men and women did. Why do the women have such why do the men and women have such great deals? Because there was no pro leagues. And so originally the idea was or or there was leagues that paid almost nothing. The idea was this is the way U.S. soccer uh, would allow players to be full time professionals, um, give them, you know, a much higher percentage of the of the um, uh, prize money because that will help fund their, you know, professional lives. They don't have to be like sponsored by Dick's Sporting Goods when they're working in Colorado as bobsledders, you know, or something like that, where what that means is you work in Dick's Sporting Goods for, you know, 30 hours a week, you know, on the side. So um, so when U.S. soccer started that, it starts a path-dependent uh, process, which you have already existing agreements that say this is what you get. You don't get any way to, um, you know, to... Uh, eliminate this, um, you have, um, so you have to ask us, as you say, Seth, you have to ask for some change, change that probably means downward adjustment, um, even though in theory, it also means you get an access to some of the women's money. And then you ask, then you say, okay, well, the men say, well, maybe we'll get some of the women's money. They're pretty good. We're not. So there you go. But then it shifts over to the women and the women are like, wait a minute, we get, the men are never going to hold up their share of the deal and make the big bucks. And we're going to end up um, giving up some of ours, which doesn't make any sense. So it is a challenging negotiation to be sure. Um, both sides have um, expressed displeasure at the idea that U.S. soccer would pit them against each other. Um, and frankly, uh, in, that's a, a, in essence, what is happening is, is that they both look bad or one side looks bad if they won't agree to what is a, you know, a reasonable deal, seemingly reasonable deal to the outsiders. But they're both being asked in some sense to give up something, men more than the women, potentially. Uh, one, good po one good factor is, is that no longer are the men um, in these... Um, uh, clubs like they're in MLS, you know, journeymen, right? It used to be the national team for the men were filled with MLS journeymen who aren't getting paid that much. The more you have M, uh, um, European based players playing for the men's team, the more you say in the negotiations, look, uh, are you better than the French players who won? Why should you get paid more than they do to win? Look at what they got. Right. You know, look at what other European, you know, other European teams, look what Brazilian teams get, you know, things like that. Like w once you can put them and say, we know what you're making for your club. Um, if you guys want to put that in a pool um, rather than to each individual player equally and you want to decide how to allocate it. So if there's some, um, you know, young player who's not making very much and you want to give them a higher share, you can vote a different share. I mean, it can be you can create a, a way in which. Uh, Pulisic doesn't take the same amount as, um, I don't know, uh, um, you know, Matt Turner, because Matt Turner, if he's still in MLS, is not making as much. You can find out a way to do that. But uh, that is the positive is, 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 hey, you're not getting paid as much anyways. So, uh, I mean, you know, so these guys can go this way. But but the club pay historically all around the world is is what finances players, not the national team play. And so you just have to agree to a, a to a paradigm shift that we are not employees. Our, our, that's a side hustle. You working for U.S. soccer is a side hustle, right? And not our main gig. And if you can get both the women and the men in that mindset, and you can get the the club pay up for both of them, tons better 
for everybody, easier to negotiate. That's why it's easier to negotiate in lots of other countries. I guess just to round off then, which which side do you think, in, in your opinion, has more to lose in these negotiations? Well, I mean, money-wise, you'd say maybe the, the men's national team, they, you know, in the sense of how much money they could potentially get. Um, but uh, the women are more likely to be successful, um, just if, if history's a guide. Um, so the worry for them is, is that they don't want a deal that ends up with them actually getting less money because the men didn't do well, right? You know, they don't want to like have, they want to, they want to be net positive. So my guess, and this is getting maybe more into the weeds than you want, but my guess is that from a negotiations perspective, there's going to be some discussion of, um, floors and ceilings or collars, you know, you think about like a collar around you. So it can go between these range, but we can never go dip below this amount. We can never go up beyond this amount or something like that, some way in which to do that. One way to do that, um, that maybe nobody would be happy with, but it's probably, it's the, it's the answer in other countries is you just give a flat amount, right? If you get this far, you get a flat amount and it has nothing to do with prize money, right? It's, it's, it's negotiate separately. And so if the, the, you know, U.S. soccer makes more money um, because FIFA was really successful and, you know, they sold a lot of rights and it's a big deal. Um, the players are, you know, maybe there's some revenue sharing element of that, but what they get as a guarantee is some flat amount. And everybody agrees, you know, if you make 200,000 bucks, that's a lot of money, right? From a club perspective, that's a lot of money. You're doing well. Um, and that's what we, and we leave it at that. And that's the way to uh, uh, to avoid someone getting huge loss and cut risk. Interestingly enough, that would be closer to the current U.S. Women's National Team CBA, right? More guaranteed pay. Like here's the amount you get. Um, uh, and not the men's national team pay, which is more like if you, uh, you know, it's a it's a, a bonus based arrangement. Right. You could you could fabulously get a ton of money or you could, you know, get nothing. Um, so, you, you know, you come up with something that's a, like a little bit in the middle of a flat fee, kind of at least for prize money. So I, I don't know if they'll if they'll get there, um, but they have to think about structure. And that's one of the ways to do it. Professor Bank, thanks so much for for joining us and enlightening us today. It's certainly going to be interesting to follow these two negotiations. And so we uh might have you back to uh, discuss the completed contracts when all is said and done. Uh, from, your, from your lips, uh, you know, if we get completed contracts, that'd be awesome. All right, that was Professor Stephen Bank from UCLA Law School. A lot to get into there, Amy, and I think that I feel, I feel a lot more enlightened, for sure. Yeah, it was, it was nice to have it fully explained and, and every little every little question that you might have about every little detail kind of opened up and explained to the non-lawyers of us out there. Yeah, for sure. And Professor Banks' Twitter feed always provides a, a wealth of information on any soccer legal issues. He's at Prof Bank. Make sure to give him a follow. Thank you so much. Once again, for listening, uh, as a reminder, please leave us a rating and a subscription wherever you get your podcasts. And we will be back speaking with you next week. All of us, the U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal. Get the latest news and views on the U.S. Women's National Team and the NWSL on Goal.